Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at Amen. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab those or turn them on. Um, we are going to be in Ecclesiastes chapter 2 today, and so we're continuing on in our Ecclesiastes series right now. All the children uh, between the ages of potty trained to 10 years old can head upstairs. They're going to go learn about Jesus. Uh, so Ecclesiastes 2, we are in our, I think this is our fourth uh, sermon in this series up to this point. And uh, again, I'm just going to keep reiterating. I feel like we've hit just a good uh, vein in a lot of our people when it comes to just the responses that we're getting and the discussions that are being had in community groups and the emails and questions. Um, it just seems like there's a healthy um, understanding that everything's frustrating right now, um, just across the board. I mean, everyone at some point in life, there's something frustrating, there's something difficult, there's something that you're not quite understanding why uh, things aren't working out or whatever it looks like. And, and so as we are kind of walking through this and seeing uh, Solomon kind of lay out this, um, this experiment for us where he's wanting to just look at everything under the sun. He's wanting to look at work and toil. He's wanting to look at uh, partying and, and enjoying life and everything that comes with that. And he's looking at uh, just accumulating a mass amount of wealth and houses and wives and concubines and, and basically just putting all of his resources into getting everything possible and then determining whether or not it was worth it, whether or not he actually got anything out of it, whether there was any enjoyment from it. And what we're seeing over and over and over again is him saying the exact same thing. All is meaningless. Yeah, all is vanity. All is pointless. Um, and so what we're trying to do in this odd book that is very different to a lot of the other books in the Bible um, this odd book, how does it fit within the meta narrative of God's word? How does it fit within the overall redemptive story and plan that God is telling us um, and communicating to us and that ultimately does provide us hope? So how is this hopeless book actually providing us hope in the midst of everything that's going on? And as I've said each week, we're just going to give you the punchline every single time so that you don't have to wait till the end. But he's constantly just pointing to us that nothing in creation is ultimately going to satisfy. Nothing under the sun is going to satisfy. Now, it doesn't mean that they're not good. It doesn't mean that it's not still gifts that God is providing for us to steward. It's not, still that, like, it's not that we shouldn't eat because we're not going to get anything out of it. It's not that we shouldn't have fun because we're not going to get anything out of it. It's just properly stewarding those good gifts knowing that they've come from a good giver and it's whether or not we are worshiping the good gifts or are we worshiping the good giver and so that's kind of really the main thing and so he just continues on um, in chapter two with this idea of the vanity of wisdom and so this vanity of wisdom is a little bit different from the second week where we were looking at the vanity of understanding um, so the vanity of understanding, he was seeking out every domain of life to just seek kind of how things work. And here he's kind of looking at whether or not 
um, there's kind of a philosophy to what we do and how we do it and whether or not it's then worth doing it. So he's kind of applying his wisdom to even see if his own wisdom in some ways is a vanity. And then he'll kind of move on into some interesting things. Um, this one, I will probably say, of the sermons that we've done so far, is going to be the darkest one. <laughs> so uh, just putting that out there. Um, this one's going to be the one that there's a lot of despair. Um, at the end of the day, it's just, it's just heavy. It's just heavy. And so uh, I hope that doesn't discourage you as ultimately we see Christ in the middle of all of this and what he's doing, even though he might be part of the problem while we have some suffering. So we'll see this in just a minute. But um, I want to start off by reading verse 12 of Ecclesiastes chapter 2. So I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king only what has already been done? So one thing he's doing here right out of the gate, kind of setting the, the stage for these 15 verses that we're going to cover, is he's saying, I'm doing everything. What is there for anyone to do after me? So let me have your ear. Listen to me in this moment. Like there's, and, and I kind of mentioned this like last week, is your, the fear that I have for us is we don't have the resources to actually exhaust our idolatry. And what I mean by that is he had all wealth, all power, all wisdom to put together the best parties that anybody has ever experienced to the tune that as we looked at in 1 Kings, that just the amount of, of animals that he was bringing in to feed people was estimating between fifteen to 20,000 people were coming to these parties. And one thing I didn't mention last week was the fact that these parties didn't just go on for a week or two weeks. He did these parties every day for a decade. I mean, so he exhausted the party scene. He exhausted every, whoever the best singers were, he were bringing, there, there was no better singer to find. He went out and got all of them. And like I said, when it came to his uninhibited sexuality, what more was there for him? He had 700 wives and 300 concubines. He had uninhibited sexuality. Was 1,001 going to finally break the, like, uh, uh, be what satisfies him? Like, he, he did not want in fantasy, essentially. And yet he looks at all of it and he says, I've, like, whatever you think you can do, I've done it better. Anything you can do, I can do better. So now he leads into verse 13 and he picks it up there. Then I saw that there is, no, or that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. Solomon's just going um, to say a couple of things here. There's some philosophies out there that actually try to uh, debunk this experiment that Solomon set out to do in order to find enjoyment. And what they're essentially saying, this, this separate kind of philosophy train of thought is you can't plan your enjoyment. It's just got to happen. You can't plan it. You, you, you can't uh, pull together all your resources and plan a party, have a guest list, 
uh, say what you're going to eat and all this. Like what you need to do rather is just gather your friends and just go out to the clubs and just see what happens. He's essentially saying like you can't come into this with eyes closed in order to ultimately find enjoyment. And what Solomon is saying is the only way to find enjoyment is you got to have your eyes open. Like you've got to go through this with wisdom, not just madness and folly. You can't just stumble your way into enjoyment. It just never works out that way. You can't run in darkness expecting to get to the destination that you want to get to. It's got to be in light. I literally have a scar on my eye right here from when I was five because I thought it was smart to just run in a room that had no lights on. And I ran into a desk. And so, if you're, yeah, I was that tall at five. <laughs> if you were wondering. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And so what he's saying here is, is it's at least more wise to think about what you're doing. And not only to think about what you're doing, but to think about and even kind of try to project what's the end here. Like what's going to, like when do I need to off-ramp this thing? When do I need to stop? When do I need to put the brakes on rather than just hoping that it works out? Last month, uh, we took some guys up to Michigan to go skiing and snowboarding. And, and I've really never had this thought, um, except for when one of our buddies was going to, and I won't say who because I don't want to embarrass him, but he just couldn't stop at the end of the slope. And so he just kept going. It just kept going and ultimately like, ran into like, where they like, stock all the skis and everything. And, and so <laughs> what reminded me of that was like, at some point, you've got to put the brakes on. Like, you can't go through life with this mentality that I'm just going to run the slope until it comes to the end. Same thing with surfing. Like, surfers do not ride the wave until the wave stops. Because they will either crash themselves on the coral or they're, like, literally just plant themselves on the beach. Like, it just, you can't do it that way. You always bail at some point. And what he's saying is, is it's wise in your pursuit of creation to bail. To literally off-ramp at times in order to not put all your hope in this thing trying to ultimately satisfy me. He's saying pay attention to the pursuit of your life. And you might actually be able to save yourself from some of sin's bigger consequences from trying to pursue something so deep and so far that it actually was never meant to hold up to that weight of your worship. And so if you were to put that into our perspective, it's like, if you want to drink, that's fine, drink. Know when to stop. And if you want to party, party, but know when to stop. And I'm saying like party with purity. I'm not, you know what I'm saying. There's the underline there. But you want to enjoy things, you just need to know when to stop. It's why you don't go to the grocery store hungry, right? You don't know when to stop. It doesn't matter if you have a budget or not. You just don't know. You're just going to keep, that looks good. I want that. I want that. I'm just going to throw it all in there. And then you break your budget and you get home and then you overeat and whatever it looks like. You can't help yourself. It's wisdom. He's wise. That's his argument here. And it's hard to argue against him when it comes to this. And then he moves on to verse 14. He kind of gets to this weird obstacle of life. And yet I perceived that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. 
For of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So now he's talking. I mean, he literally is starting to kind of contradict himself here. It's better to live wise than to live in madness and folly. However, as he kind of continues to just think about it, he's like, well, it's also vanity because the wise person dies just like the fool does. Like ultimately, death is coming. Death is, and so therefore, why should I even put anything out? Why should I even uh, toil? Why should I work? Why should I enjoy if ultimately death is coming for me? And here's a little side note on this is we just don't think about it. We don't think about death. We don't ponder it like he's pondering it right now. Because the majority of us in this room are under the age of 27. We don't ponder death. We don't think about it. Like, literally, I'm 33, and, and um, I don't think about it often. And the reason why I don't think about it often is because I still feel like I've probably got 50, 60 more years to go. But one thing that I do see, and it was actually kind of weird for me this week, was... Um, and so whenever I get on Facebook and I'm scrolling, what I see the most right now is all of my old friends and acquaintances and, and members that were a part of the church that I served at in White House, Tennessee. Um, I'm just starting to see almost every other week the faithful elderly saints are just passing away. And it's a weird thing for me. I mean, because this was a group that I was very close to when I was there. But now it's like just, they're just dropping like flies. And, and what I'm also seeing in that is my closest friends, it's their grandparents. And so I'm seeing them share about their grandparents' life. And it's a beautiful thing. And they're celebrating their life. And then I just had this weird thought. Like as I was reading that, I had this weird thought that like one day, like Lord willing, like my kids will be saying the same thing of me like on the interwebs of whatever weird technology is going to be in the future, and they're sharing it and posting it, they're going to be saying stuff of us that is our death. And then it was kind of weird for me in that moment to think, like, not only what would they say, but that that's actually coming. Like, it's actually coming. And Lord willing, by his grace, I hope it's 50, 60 years from now, but we're not promised that. And so it gave me a weird perspective, and I think this is what Solomon's trying to draw us into. It gave me a different perspective for what happened the next morning. Because what happened the next morning was Ezra yelling before we have this green light that allows him when he can get up and come get us. But before this green light goes off, I've got Ezra coming through the hallway yelling. And what he's yelling is why it's taking his pants off with a dirty diaper. <laughs> and so like, and so immediately on on. Any other morning, Kelsey knows this. On any other morning, I, she knows I'm getting out of bed frustrated because I value my sleep. I like sleep. Like, I'm not the godly guy who gets up at 5 a.m. every morning to be with the Spirit. It's just not me. I don't operate that way. I'm like, let's get the Spirit at midnight. I like that Spirit. That's a good one. But so 7 o'clock rolls around, Ezra's screaming, yelling. So I get up, and I think literally, I can, I can honestly say this, for the first time, I enjoyed cleaning up poop. I had a different perspective. I knew in that moment, because of this weird death thing I was just contemplating the night before, I knew in this moment, that morning, I'm not going to have a lot more days left like this. 
that I get to get up and clean up nasty poop. Now, luckily, it wasn't one of those ones that's like going to be smeared all over the room. Like, he kept it contained. (laughs) But just changing his diaper. And then for the next 30 minutes, usually, usually, what I'll do is get them changed and, and then go back. And when the green light comes on, come get mommy and daddy. But I spent some extra time getting on the floor playing trucks versus bulldozers. I mean, it was just a little thing we were doing. And I just contemplated this thought of like, yes, it ultimately doesn't matter. But the more that I contemplate death and that it is coming makes me value a little bit more what's going on in the moment. And I want to cherish it and I want to take hold of it. And I want to... I want to cultivate it a little bit more than maybe I usually do. Jonathan Edwards, one of my heroes, says he resolved that he was going to think on his own death often in the circumstances therein because he wanted right relationships and he wanted right standing before God. And he found that thinking about his own death drove him to do what is right. And the truth is most of us feel immortal. Most of us do. But the truth is you are unbelievably unbelievably fragile and could develop flu-like symptoms tomorrow that take your life in eight weeks. One of the things we did as a leadership team, this was probably about two years ago, was I gathered the team and, and took them to Crown Hill Cemetery um, and gave them Jonathan Edwards, um, his uh, resolutions, uh, which is basically just his checklist of like, these are the things that I want to resolve within my life. Uh, these are things I want to commit myself to. And I said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go around. I want you to find a grave that when you do the math on the grave, it equals your age. And then I want you to read these resolutions. It just puts a different weight on your life. It puts a different moment to, uh, I'll get to that later, but let me do it now. Let me think on this now. So then from there, he moves into verse 17. He says, so I hated life, Because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after wind. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me, and who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be a master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is a vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun." Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is a vanity and a great evil. He hasn't used great evil yet. But now he's throwing that in as he kind of gives himself over to despair. He's not only just frustrated, but now he's giving himself over to despair. Because he's looking at everything, this entire experiment that he's underway. He's looking at all of it. All that he's built, all that he's worked for, all that he's accumulated. And he's essentially saying, I can't take it with me. I can't take it with me. I'm going to have to leave it. And what he actually looks at, and if you know um, just the history of, of what happens with the Israelites, when Solomon dies, Israel literally dissolves. Just dissolves. Because it's left to a bunch of foolish people who aren't trusting God, who are not setting their heart to wisdom, who are not following in the path of of just letting God rule this nation. 
And so what Solomon is essentially doing here is saying like, why am I even doing this when I'm looking at my idiot sons and I know that this is going to go very badly when I pass away? And he gives himself over to, again, as it says, despair. To where he hates his life and he hates his toil. Another thing with this and the fact that he hates his toil and, and, and you see this kind of move from frustration to despair, I think, it, I think it moves into an area of our society and our culture that a lot of people aren't willing to tap into and in some ways have even kind of redeemed it in, a, in just a weird, ethereal way. But we see this played out more so in those who have accumulated a lot of things and then take their lives. Because there's nothing left for them to pursue. There's nothing left for them to gain. And I think this is where Solomon now is starting to move into is this level of there's nothing left for me to gain. But not only that, the legacy of where I'm going to be leaving all that I have is still going to literally be dissolved and someone else is going to, uh, to, to suffer with it or someone else is going to find out that it's not going to be for them um, what they hope it's going to be either. Like it, he's literally moving himself into a level or an area of just deep depression. And it reminds me of, of something that just happened over this last year. Uh, one of my favorite bands um, is a band by the name of Linkin Park. And if that offends you, um, I'm sorry. Um, I, at least it's not Nick. I'm not going Nickelback, all right? But Linkin Park, I do like Nickelback, but that's a whole nother story. <laughs> Um, Lincoln Park. My thing with music, I've been having a conversation about music yesterday, is like if you have something to say, I'll listen to it. Like, like I, I, in, I don't like the fluffy, like, we're not going to go there. But anyways, if you have something to say, I'll listen to it. And so I've always resonated and just really enjoyed Lincoln Park's music. One, because I kind of discovered it when I was in high school and at that time playing football. It was like, I mean, I was ready to go, like just anytime I listened to it. Um, but I never really paid attention to the lyrics during those years. Now that I've kind of gone back and have listened to the lyrics in light of the lead singer uh, taking his own life, I go back and he's literally pouring out his soul in the fact that money and fame and him having another platinum album or him gaining anything else was not going to fill the void that he had. And so he's literally crawling in his own skin because he can't stand the fact that what he's striving after and what he's trying to find, he can't get it with what he's devoted himself to. And I think that's exactly what Solomon is laying out for us here, is that he's crawling in his own skin. He's giving himself over to despair, literally to where he's hating his life. Because he's not finding satisfaction in it. And even knowing that when he leaves it to the next person, it's not going to satisfy them as well. They're actually just going to destroy it. Real chipper sermon here, right? (laughs) Verse 22, he then goes on to, What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are just full of sorrow. And his work is a vexation. Another thing I want to just point out here is I want to show you the difference between 
what Solomon is saying is I've gained everything. And now in Christian circles, we can also kind of say, well, obviously he's in such frustration and turmoil because this is what we preach against all the time. Like, it, it, like Christianity is not a materialistic religion. It's not about how much you gain. It's not about how much you get. It's not about how much you earn. It's not about what you do. But at the same time, we've got to draw attention to where Ecclesiastes might be a book where this guy in an experiment gets everything. Job is a book where he's a faithful guy who loses everything and still finds it to be not satisfying. So we're getting both sides of the coin here where it's not about how much creation you get or how little creation you get. It's much deeper than that. And he even starts wrestling with this as he continues on in verse 23. For all his days are full of sorrow and his, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This might be the best verse that resonates with many of us in this room. How many of you are just having a hard time going to sleep at night? Because of work, because of relationships, because of uh, bills, because of money, because of stress, because of fill in the blank. Solomon is literally just crying out, even in the night, I cannot sleep. My heart cannot rest. This also is a vanity. And so he's kind of asking these two questions. Is there an answer to this? Or is it all hopeless? And I think he actually begins to shift the perspective now in Ecclesiastes to, to finally starting to provide us some answers. Look at verse 24. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. Now, I want to stop here for a second because um, there's certain passages that when we try to translate them into English, it's very difficult. And I found this being one of those passages that, that just about every commentary that I've read on this and the, and the theologians that talk on this all agree that there's no good way to translate this passage into the English language from its original meaning. So as I kind of deduced out of all of the kind of their, their understandings of the context of this passage and what he's trying to say, this is what they each agree is coming from this passage. Because when you first read it, he's essentially saying, there's nothing better than for you just to eat and drink and find enjoyment. But that's actually not what it's saying. <laughs> and this is what it's actually saying. There is nothing intrinsic with a man's soul that will allow him lasting enjoyment in eating and drinking and toil. There's nothing better. There's nothing in, in, in our realm that will actually give us the lasting enjoyment that we're looking for. Nothing will work out that way. Everybody, myself included, I mean, we over and over again just ascribe to the philosophy that what we need is just more what we have to satisfy us. We all operate in that mindset. But just as Jordan just, just talked about, can you remember the day when you, when, that, when you got the car? Great day. Got it for free, even better. Now it's dead. He needs another car. Cell phone. The cell phone in your pocket right now, by the time we finish this sermon, either needs an update or there's another one ready to go. 
But when you got it, it was like, I've got to get this phone. I've got to have this one. It's got this feature on it. Like it can start my car. Like it can, it can do all these things. I got to get this one. And then four months later, Apple rolls out another one that's got better features, better cameras, better whatever. And that one phone that you would have destroyed the entire house trying to find because you lost it. Now, all of a sudden, because you've upgraded, that phone goes in a drawer, goes in the trash, or you sell it for 20 bucks to a friend. Like, like this is the, the, literal, the treadmill, and I'm not going to do the sound this time because you all made fun of me last time about it. All right, everyone, like, I literally, the amount of text I got of just people shooting lasers at me <laughs> was off, yeah, anyways. But we're running on a treadmill Literally, not getting anywhere with all the things that we're putting hope in, that we're buying, that we're accumulating. And what he's saying here is, is, is every single one of those things grow dull. They grow dull. Cars lose their new car shine and the new car smell. The house that you're in right now, will, at some point you'll think, man, I could, I could change this wall, I could move this out, I could upgrade this, I could update this, I could... You know what? Let's just get rid of the house. Let's go get another house. Let's, do, let's, just, let's just keep going, going, and going, and going, and going. And he's saying it's not, you're actually not, there's nothing that you're going to find that will actually give you the lasting enjoyment that you're after. Verse 24, this also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him who can eat or who can have enjoyment. So thank you, Solomon, that you're finally giving us an answer here. But here's something interesting. Is he's saying this vanity, this meaningless um, conclusion that I've come to is from the hand of God. He's literally allowed Solomon to exhaust all of his resources and to get to the place to where he's then given himself over to despair, to where he can't rest at night, to where he literally says, I hate life. And Solomon is now telling us, this is from the hand of God. One of the hard things that you'll um, rarely ever hear pastors preach is that God's gonna bring you through the desert. You don't wander into it. He's going to bring you through it. He's going to bring you to it. He might bring you to a place that drops you to your knees rather than having your hands held high. He might actually orchestrate for you to experience grief and pain and turmoil. Because what he's trying to do is he's trying to show you that these earthly things that we are giving ourselves over to, as Romans 1 says, like he's literally reversing our pursuit where we're trying to worship creation rather than creator. He's saying, when I give you over to your worship of creation, I'm going to allow you to hurt and I'm going to allow you to grow frustrated. I'm going to allow you to get to the place where you're at the end of your rope. And you're looking at all of it and you're saying it's meaningless. It's pointless. I mean, I feel like I, 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 
<laughs> I feel like I do this with, with our kids every week. It's like, you want to you climb up on that couch and jump? Jump. See what happens. Now, that's terrible. But there's a process of learning where they get hurt and they learn. God is doing this with us so that we don't keep chasing enjoyment and the wrong things, but that we can actually turn that enjoyment to the right things. He gives gifts to all, food, drink, work, friends, family. He gives gifts to all, but only those who are the children of God can actually find fulfillment. Fulfillment, that's a new one. Fulfillment in God alone. Because one of the things that Solomon talks about here is that the good gifts that God gives go to all. I mean, the sun sets on the righteous and the unrighteous. And the sun rises on the righteous and the unrighteous. The rain falls on the righteous and the unrighteous. Essentially what he's saying is uh, men and women, whether you're a believer or not a believer, can marry and enjoy one another, can eat and enjoy food, can drink and enjoy drink, can, can play and enjoy play and have fun and can do all these things and to a level or a degree enjoy it. But what Solomon is ultimately turning to here is they can enjoy it, but they will never enjoy it to its fullness. They will never enjoy it in such a way that they actually don't care about the good gifts anymore. They actually steward them in a right way. And here's a reality for a lot of us is, and, and this is one of the things I like about Solomon, what he says here, um, is he starts to get to this idea of what pleases God. Like what pleases him ultimately? Because if that's us enjoying God, is us pleasing God, what then is actually pleasing him? And the reality is that a lot of us can come up with our own ideas of what pleases God. Like when I was in high school, what pleased God in my mind was um, being, at, um, or being on the student ministry leader team was what pleased God. Showing up on Mondays for a prayer gathering at the church pleased God. Um, being able to wear a WWJD bracelet everywhere you walked pleased God. We all come up with our ways of what pleases him ultimately. But what we actually come back to are those are actually just still pursuits of ours for creation. It's still things that we do, that we ascribe to, that we're trying to work out. And what he ultimately is trying to get down to here is it's not about what you are doing, but what you're enjoying when it comes to pleasing God. And that's faith in him alone. It's faith. Faith is the only thing that we participate in that pleases God. It pleases him. And here's the reality is that 99% of all conflicts comes from what I'm about to say. The majority of humans believe that people and circumstances exist to make us happy. And what I want to show you is why just trusting in faith in God frees you from the mentality that everything exists to serve me. 
Because without the mentality of faith in him, trusting him, believing him, just whatever you want us to do, whatever you want to give me, whatever you don't want to give me, whatever you want to take away, whatever you want to, uh, whatever you want to do, I trust you, I believe you, my faith is in you. When you don't have that, what you have is everything else exists for my pleasure. Because if I'm not getting it in God, then I'm going to have to get it in everything else. And so what that means is, and just kind of play this out with me here, if I were to take myself apart from God and everything exists to please me, then what that means is my wife better satisfy me, my kids better satisfy me, my work better satisfy me. And when those things don't satisfy me, I'm going to do a little experiment. I'm going to start to study to see which ones aren't satisfying me. And so if it's Kelsey that's not satisfying me, well, then I'm going to start putting more demands on her. You need to do this in order to bring me pleasure. You need to give me this in order to bring more pleasure. And if it's my kids, you need to be, you need to act right. You need to do this. You need to, I'm just going to start weighing it out there. And, and ultimately, again, because they can't reach perfection, I'm always going to find issues with them. I'm going to then move on from them. So it's actually not Kelsey. It just needs to be someone else that's better. So I'm going to move on from her. And if it's not the kids, I'm going to leave them and I'm going to find something that's better. And if it's not my job, I'm going to leave it. I'm going to find something that's better. I'm just going to keep going and going and going. Because it all is seeking to please me. But if I'm about God alone, and God is my pleasure, and he's who I'm trusting to give and take away, then all of a sudden now I'm able to live free. Because I'm not in bondage to whether or not something's going to please me. I'm pleased in God. He is satisfying my heart. He is satisfying my soul. He is satisfying my mind. He is, he is satisfying me. And if I'm fully satisfied in him, then everything else, as a good gift that God has given, I'm able to steward in a way that I can then give myself over to those things. I can then pursue, I can then love, I can then empty myself, I can then give myself because I know that I've got a well over here that is unending, pouring into me pleasure and satisfaction so that I can then overflow that and give it out and give it out and give it out and just keep flowing it. And in that, you find yourself being the most free person that has ever lived. Because if you truly trust and faith that God's going to provide for you. That he tells you in Matthew 6, don't worry about your finances. Don't worry about the clothes on your back. Don't worry about the food on your table. Don't worry about your house overhead. Look at the birds. Ransford's favorite passage. Look at the birds. If I take care of them, how much more will I take care of you? They're not worrying at night whether or not they're going to have clothes and drink and whether or not they're going to eat and whether or not they're going to have jobs and whether or not, like, they're not worried about it. Neither should you. Because I'm going to provide for you. And I'm going to provide for you in ways that are going to allow you to be generous with your resources. Generous with your resources. I mean, this is Solomon's big argument. If my wife would have done it, no. He's saying, I've had 700 of them and they didn't do it. 
If I could just have nicer things. His house was nicer than the temple, and the temple was one of the ancient wonders of the world. If I could just make something of myself, he's saying, make what? There's nothing more that you can make that I didn't already make. Have you ever planted a forest? No, you haven't. You gardened in your little pot. <laughs> like, he planted a forest. There's nothing more you can do than that. Who gets lasting fulfillment? Who gets joy? Who gets this? It's the one who finds the pleasure in God and him alone. Verse 26, for to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is a vanity and a striving after a wind. I wish he would have just stopped at verse 25 because it sounded a lot easier um, to just finish with, don't strive after this, strive after God, you get all pleasure. But then he ends with a weird one where he says, everyone's going to be striving after the same thing. And those who are striving who are not pleasing God, all of their stuff is going to end up in the hands of the Christians. That's essentially what he's saying. And is that true? Technically, yes. Because what we know is going to happen ultimately in the end is that God is going to create a new heavens and a new earth. And this new earth is a gift to those who are in the family of Christ. That we get to, again, not worship, but enjoy. We get to enjoy it. Who do not get to enjoy that are the non-believers. Those who are not pleasing God. Those who are not having faith in Christ. Those who are not trusting Him. And so they're getting their good gifts now, and this is the only time they're ever going to have it. This is what I said, I think I said this in our community group a couple of weeks ago. But this life for an unbeliever is as close to heaven as they'll ever get. This life for a believer is as close to hell as we'll ever get. And it's just reality. It's reality. And at both are coming from the hands of the Lord. It's coming from his sovereignty. Are we trusting him or are we trusting in our own, in our own ways of doing things? And this is the message of Solomon. You've got two choices. You can treadmill it or you can just trust that there's something bigger than you that is not out to destroy you. I think one of the best ways to understand faith, because again, faith is one of those ethereal things, like I can't do it. I can't check it off my list. Faith is just knowing that God is always here. He's always there. That for those who he is redeeming and reconciling and saving. Whether you're on the mountaintop or you're in the valley, he's there and he's not going anywhere and he's got you and he's walking you through it. He's helping you when you're on the mountaintop not worship it and create idolatry. And when you're in the valley, he's helping you not go into despair because he's strengthening you while you're there and he's pulling you through. This is why I love what the Apostle Paul says in Philippians where he just kind of gives out his, 
his um, story or just uh, history of his life, whether I've had a lot or I've had a little, whether I've been in hunger or I've literally been a glutton, like whatever it is, I know that those things aren't, don't matter ultimately. I'm content whether I have a lot or a little because what I do know is that I have Christ in the middle of it. I have Christ in the midst of it. So if I have a lot, Christ is going to anchor me to humility. And if I have a little, Christ is going to exalt me to have a seat with him on the throne forever. Man, we're trusting him as we navigate through this life, as we navigate through this experiment. But at the end of the day, our lives are just experiments. We're just the poorer version of Solomon. Every day, you've got this choice. I've got this choice every single day. Asking the question, is this satisfying me or is Christ satisfying me? And if I'm finding the satisfaction in Christ, if I'm beholding him, if I'm treasuring him, abiding in him, just seeing his goodness, just being reminded of his 33 years that he lived on his life. I mean, talk about like putting that in perspective. I'm 33. And seeing what he did to earn for me a chance to live in eternity with him. It just gives you a different perspective. I treasure what he has done. I'm thankful for what he has done. And that thankfulness produces a gratitude that then stewards all the good gifts that he gives in such a way that it advances his kingdom and it makes him look good and it makes much of him. And hopefully just as John the Baptist says, I decreased, he increases. That's what I hope for my life. I hope I get to a point, just like Solomon, where he says, there will come a day that nobody remembers you. Nobody remembers you. That's a beautiful thing to be forgotten. As long as your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren and their great-grandchildren know Jesus because of the legacy that you left. That's what's important. Let's treasure him above everything else. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this message, this heavy one that you have given us. We thank you for this book, Ecclesiastes, that challenges us to rethink a lot when it comes to how we live our lives, how we steward them, how we manage the gifts that we have. And God, I pray that ultimately for, for those of us in this room, I say for those of us, for all of us in this room who still find ourselves striving after the wind, trying to find satisfaction in the things that we have and the relationships that we have, I pray that you would bring us to that end where we see and we know and we feel it and we can't rest because we know that those things are not meant to satisfy. And so turn us to see that it's only faith in you that pleases you. That just trusting that you are working out everything for the good of those who are called according to your purpose, that that is what brings pleasure to you. We trust that. 
We trust that. We want to posture our lives in such a way that, that, that it reflects our trust in you. So Lord, if we're, if we're not there yet, give us wisdom, give us understanding. Let us see it. And if we are there and we're able to make that turn, let us start helping others see it as well. Let us spur one another on. Let us encourage each other. For it's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at